Well, welcome to episode two of the Carver cast. Uh, I'm John Anazu, along with my co-host, Panina Laker. Hi, yes. Panina. Yes. Hi. Good job. And do you want to do you want to start by saying what this podcast is about? We forgot yeah. that last time. This is the Carver cast, and the goal of the podcast is to engage with Christian faculty in higher education, and we will spend some time highlighting their work. Um, and the hope is that we can get a better sense of what those connections are between the university, church, and society. That was excellent. And even the voicing was so brilliant. And, you know, um, at some point, someone told us we should probably have a little intro to this podcast. So we'll get some, we need to pay someone to put a little music on there and have a theme song or something. So, you know, we might get around to that. But if not, this is otherwise a very high quality podcast. <laughs> Who is our studio guest today? <laughs> Tell us. Uh, joining us today is our, our colleague right here from Washington University, Professor John Hendricks, who is uh, just recently chair of design in the Sam Fox School, where you are located, and has an otherwise uh, complex and fascinating history and professional life. Uh, welcome to the CarverCast, John Hendricks. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, I'm disappointed that my episode does not have theme music. So, uh, <laughs> cute music. Why was I not, you know, put onto a later episode when everything was, you know, sort of awesome? Uh, but yeah, glad. John, to be here. John, like everything uh, about the Carver Project, you're part of the beta testing, so you should know that. <laughs> well, yeah. let's get into it. Um, would you like to take it away, co-host? Sure. Um, and actually, John Hendricks, um, among the many amazing things that you do, um, c- kind of sad that he's you know, transitioning out of being chair uh, at the San Fox School of Design and Visual Arts, specifically in the Communication Design Department. So he was my chair, amazing, phenomenal chair, also my mentor, and uh, also co-teacher on um, so many different courses. Uh, but John, we are so excited to have you here. And uh, assuming that our listeners, our very many listeners, do not know who you are, uh, would you mind telling us a little bit about just your journey to um, doing what you do today? How did you get there? Yeah, happy to talk about that. I, I mean, I always wanted to be uh, an artist, a professional artist. And so my my journey to academia was in many ways accidental. I, I came to academia um, uh, through a, a bizarre series of uh, what, of course, I at the time thought were just sort of uh, random firings of the universe, but now they really do seem like uh, the Lord uh, moving me here to St. Louis. Um, I had a friend at the New York Times and they knew someone here at WashU who knew I was from St. Louis. So uh, I, I came to St. Louis on a three-year contract. That was it. It was kind of a flyer. And I realized that I, I just love teaching. Uh, and I and I love the the research space of a place like mm-hmm. WashU. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. It, it ended up being a perfect fit for my kind of work, which was not – I was not purely interested in, in form as, a, as an artist. I was interested in – narrative and ideas uh and and ultimately this the center of my my work now is really um translating or or reframing uh historical stories and ideas for young people 
So you, I couldn't help but notice that you name checked the New York Times in there. And uh, could you tell us a little bit about that, that uh, past part of your life? I like I like just saying that casually, mostly because I still have my employee discount. I like I get the, <laughs> the Sunday newspaper at a really cheap rate, and I don't know if I get that for life. I just never want to tell them about it in case it, it gets canceled. Uh, no, I, <laughs> I I worked there for uh, three years as an assistant uh, art director on the op-ed page, uh, and worked there from uh, 2002 to 2005, and got to witness some great sort of events on the newsroom from the the New York blackout to major snowstorms to a, a presidential election. Uh, so it was an exciting time to be at a newspaper like that. I mean, and that was another opportunity that I, I, I just, I mean, people spend their whole lives trying to work at the New York times and mm-hmm. I, I, I just fell backwards into it. Um, and it ended up being a way I could stay in New York because it's a very expensive place to live. And I, I only worked there about 25 hours a week. And then the rest of the time I could uh, freelance and start my illustration career. Um, but I, I, I still miss it. Honestly, it was incredibly exciting. I had like eight uh, espressos a day. Uh, it was, <laughs> <laughs> it that's was compared to now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Now I'm down to uh, six. So, <laughs> John, are there, um, any specific um, sort of moments um, with students or in the classroom as you sort of had started your teaching journey that you sort of uh, hold on to and remember as being monumental to allowing you, I, I guess, to to making you stick with it? Mm. Well, my, my first year, I, so I had taught exactly one semester at Parsons School of Design in New York. I was hired to teach a class called Design for Illustrators. And I had taught that, and and that was my entire teaching line on my TV when I got hired at WashU. So I came into a, a, a three-and-a-half load, course load per semester, and was just dropped into the mix. And I, I truly, looking back, knew nothing about teaching. Um, I mean, I basically, because I had been working as an art director, I treated teaching like I was um, art directing an assignment. So I would Mm -hmm. basically exactly what to do to get to the end result, you know, because I'm so smart and I worked at the New York Times. (laughs) I I felt I was a pretty good teacher, but uh, it was um, Douglas Dowd, who I mentioned earlier, I I was uh, co-taught a class with him. And he really taught me everything I know about teaching in an art classroom, which is to like listen and and wait and not answer a student's question right away and to ask them a question in response to their question. And um, it's a very, you know, it's it's very much Socratic. It's like Jesus. It's it's not giving everyone the answer. It's telling, you know, art parables instead of saying this should be read and put that over there. Uh, and frankly, it's very frustrating to students sometimes because that's not, that's not what they want. So, I mean, early on in my teaching, I, I realized what a, what an art it was to do it well, um, to still be a sympathetic voice, um, to not be a bully. Um, and yet, and yet to, to ask something of them, you know, to, to demand that they, that they, they reach your expectation of their potential. Um, and that's. It's always a balance. It sounds like that balance between 
truth and grace is a broader life lesson as well, right? We could apply it to other contexts. Yeah, that's a great point. It's exactly what it is. Yeah. Do you have a, a favorite class to teach or a favorite subject when you're with students these days? Well, I, I, so I, I've taught a sketchbook class for like 10 years. I, I finally handed it off to another faculty member, the, uh, a beloved faculty member who's now teaching it, which I, I deeply miss. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a class that I always enjoy teaching and it's a, it's a media class. Uh, it's illustration based, but each project we use a different, um, handmade form of making stuff. And a lot of times these students, which are now so native to digital platforms, it, it, to me, it is so fun to watch them, uh, building a, a figure out of Sculpey or, uh, you know, carving a lino block for the first time or doing a mono print, you know, techniques that they understand in theory, but have not really, art students today do not have the same familiarity with hand processes that they did even 10 years ago. So, um, I just love getting students into do stuff with their hands that they did not expect. So those are the ones that I like and enjoy. Um, but just about every course I teach has, uh, aspects of it that are really, uh, life-giving. Do you feel like some of that, um, is sort of slowing down and not rushing to the computer and just giving yourself the time and the space to just create with your hands? Because I feel like these days there is, um, it's kind of like a sense of urgency we can attribute to anything, whether it's creating a logo or, um, making images. And when you dive to the computer, one, you can make edits really quickly and delete. Uh, whereas when you're working with your hands, you can't easily erase. So it, it allows you, almost forces you to maybe even like think a little more critically and um, innovate in some ways. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, and I fundamentally believe that forms are connected to content. And so that there are certain media that will produce different kinds of ideas because of their form. And so mm-hmm. When you are manipulating something in your hand that you're sculpting, it just it connects different things than you would if you were moving a mouse around. So like mm-hmm. just idea generation is just not linear. It's it's all connected to, you know, our hand, our eye and our our mind all in in connection. And so, of course, if in your hand is a is a a, a lino cut tool instead of a a Wacom stylist that that's going to make different ideas. So I just think that is a fundamental thing they need to experience. Mm -hmm. You know, there's another side of your professional work that we haven't yet talked about. And that's, that's your freelancing, but also the books you write. And I I think one of the intriguing things about your professional profile is that you teach at, you know, with us at Washington university, which is very much not a religious school, but your books are explicitly Christian. You write about Jesus and you write about Christian <laughs> martyrs and other, other unmistakably Christian topics. That's as explicit as you can get, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <That's very laughs> hard. It's hard to pretend that you're not doing that. So, so can you talk, well, first of all, tell us about some of your books and we'll put links to them on our mm-hmm. page and you'll probably see a huge spike in sales after the yeah. podcast. But, um, <laughs> but tell us about the books and then maybe talk about the, whether there's a tension or, or or however you want to describe it in terms of connecting your wash you work with your with your explicitly christian books and and messaging 
So I do generally books for young people. Um, over the past, you know, 10 years, most of those books have been picture books, which are, are for younger audiences, though they are historical. There are picture books kind of for bedtime and there's picture books for the library. And mine are, you know, in the, the library side of picture books. But, um, you know, re recently with my book, The Faithful Spy, um, that's a book about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and him joining the plot to kill Hitler. Uh, that That is a graphic novel for older, older readers. Um, it's a middle grade book, but, you know, I've had high schoolers and even many adults that have enjoyed it. Um, so part of what I think why I do those kinds of books, it, it's funny, early on when I was starting out, I told everyone that 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 the only reason why you shouldn't you shouldn't be obsessed with doing work that had to have Jesus in it if you were a Christian, and so I, I defended this sort of like you should be able to make work about anything if you're a Christian. You're a, you're an artist who's a Christian rather than a Christian artist, and yet now I'm I'm doing literal books about Jesus. So <laughs> it 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 has come full circle. So yeah, I've done picture books about I, I did a book about uh, retelling the story of Christ called Miracle Man, and then I have a new one coming out in the spring about the parables of Jesus called Go and Do Likewise in that same picture book format. Uh, and then my, my next graphic novel is going to be about um, C.S. Lewis and, and J.R.R. Tolkien's relationship and uh, how they sort of reinvented uh, mythology in the 20th century. And do those books create any tensions for you in your, the other half of your life? doing teaching and, and work mm -hmm. at Washington University? Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, yes, no, they do. Um, well, I want, it's funny because students will sometimes not know how to engage it exactly. You know, um, well, I had a student who, it turned out she was uh, also a Christian and she did not tell me till uh, basically the, the very last day of school because she was like, I didn't know, you know, if that was too personal to talk to you about or, um, and, and in some cases, you know, faculty maybe don't know exactly how to engage. I mean, I, I put all this stuff in my tenure and promotion documents. I mean, these are all things that I'm not trying to say, well, if it's religious, then it can't be part of an academic career. Um, but yeah, it is, it is odd. It, it's different than having something that could be sort of universally celebrated by all parts of the university. I mean, I, I, I don't, I've never sensed that there's any kind of, um, you know, persecution. I think that's a little ridiculous, but, but it's, it's definitely not something that, you know, wa the WashU Twitter account is not going to tweet out <laughs> like, a Jesus book by one of their faculty, whereas maybe in some other content they might, you know. Are, are there um, any experiences or moments you've had that um, you have found more encouraging uh, in the recent years? And I, and I would say maybe even specific to like late last year, you started um, our first um, Some Folks at Student Reading Group. And, and that was really special because it sort of created a space and a time for students and faculty to come together and sharing the word and encourage one another sort of aside from, you know, the experiences we have in the classroom. But, you know, what have you found encouraging in moments like that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it is a funny thing to, 
try to figure out how you find students that you might want to engage in talking about uh, spiritual ideas. You know, um, there's, you know, I, I do not bring it up as part of classwork. You know, uh, if students meet me for advising, um, in many ways, you, you become sort of like their 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 career therapist. And a lot of times you hear about their life. And usually that's the space where if uh, uh, concepts of faith or issues um, that are personal in terms of their religious story come out. Um, but yeah, the the reading group has been great just because that that space of student and faculty being able to share together about um, the sort of mysteries and and contradictions and anxieties of of faith in a in an academic setting um, is really great to be able to take down those uh, differences between a, a professor and a student, you know, even just for an hour or two, you know, there's, there's such a, a power imbalance in, in a classroom, you know, the professor is the, the professor, you know, and mm-hmm. so to sit around together and I, I mean, I can't imagine experiencing that as a student personally. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that, I mean, it, to me as a, as a young person, if I had a few professionals in my field that I could sit with at my university that were experiencing the same uh, questions and, um, you know, wonders about what their career means um, and how it impacts, how the word of God impacts our choices. I mean, that would have been incredibly encouraging. So, yeah, that's, that was a wonderful part of last year. John, you mentioned a, a few minutes ago in passing the difference between an artist who is a Christian and a Christian artist. And I know you and I have had this conversation over the years, and it's a it's a point that I think to some people is, is fairly embedded and intuitive, but but many people haven't even thought about that basic distinction. So I wonder if you could unpack that a bit and explain what you mean by that difference. Yeah, I was just uh, I just had my at my first Carver classroom. Uh, we were talking about artists in the church, and this was uh, a big part of our our first session. Um, I think it's critical that we operate as people who are not trying to divide the world into the sacred and the secular all the time. And so, I think if you do that with your career, it can be a very stressful thing. Um, so in, in this case, I, I do not make work that is built under an umbrella of uh, Christendom. You know, like it's not like what, how, how, does, how does the umbrella of the church and the Jesus story then manifest itself in my art? It, it, it all goes the other way for me. I, I'm, I have desires and interests and stories I, I want to tell. And, um, you know, of course, those are shaped by my faith because those and any sort of it doesn't even matter if it's faith to you. It could be any sort of first principle thing like, you know, Wendell Berry says the our work is determined by our understanding of the story in which we are taking part in. And I, I love that idea. Like we if we don't understand the story that we are taking part in, we're not going to understand what our work is. So. My work as an artist uh, is deeply informed by my faith, mm. but I, I'm not um, I, I'm not at the service of a particular church goal when I make art. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes me think too. You, you know, you don't, you don't really want the Christian airplane built by somebody who prays a lot. You want the, the airplane <laughs> built on engineering and physics, right? That, that could, yeah. could still be done in the service of Christ. That's right. John, I, I, I'm curious, sort of going back into um, touching a little bit back into teaching and Herod, and as you have seen, sort of the, the role that you have played, sort of change in the last. Um, year or so and now sort of chairing our newly founded um, MFA in illustration and visual culture. Um, how how do you feel like that sort of role now, sort of like being in a more sort of leadership administrative role um, has sort of gone on to, to mold the way you experience your faith um, in higher ed, in the classroom, being in that sort of position versus being John, the professor in the classroom only? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Uh, I, I think that, well, one, it's made me miss teaching desperately. I mean, one of the like (laughs) great things about being uh, a chair, and in fact, I'm last year, I was two chairs, which was, um, is that you get a course release, which is awesome because you get to do more email. uh, But (laughs) The bummer is you're not in the classroom. So it is it has made me deeply miss some of these courses I've taught for many years. So that's been a, a positive. Um, but I think just it has made me reflect on just recently there has been um, some accounts started in Instagram and various places. Um, mm-hmm. Black at RISD, Black at SVA, Black mm-hmm. at WashU. And mm-hmm. um, I have been you know, a part of some hard meetings with students, um, hard experiences, uh, hard experiences with faculty in, in the area of r- race and uh, privilege. And mm-hmm. to, to me, I'm just Joe Schmo professor, but to the students, I'm part of the establishment. And mm-hmm. so there is a burden when you are a leader that you, you kind of have to answer for your institution, which like some, mm-hmm. sometimes really sucks. You know, you, you sometimes you want to say, well, no, I'm not like that. But mm-hmm. you know, when you're the person who's the chair of the department and there's a problem, um, you kind of have to, you, you kind of have to wear it, you know? And I think that's, that's what leadership is sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it's, I, I think it, it, there are some, there are some overlaps to our faith where d- despite wanting to defend ourselves or wanting to protest that we, we are not sinful in this situation. There is a kind of humility that's this required mm-hmm. I think, in, in good leaders to say that this is, um, this is true. And yeah, I, I accept it, you know? Mm-hmm. And you'd actually also talked about how in your early days of teaching, you quickly learned that um, you had to be quick to listen and very slow to answer. And, and you also sort of touched on like power dynamics. And, and I think now finding yourself in such a position of leadership uh, where you sort of have to shoulder, shoulder some of that burden. I, you know, I think in, um, in some ways, there's also such a great opportunity um, for you to sort of like be able to speak on and maybe even like provide some ideas and solutions that are not only coming from a, a place of place of empathy, but that your faith or so you, through your faith, you genuinely um, care about your students and uh, you want them to do well. You want them to have a, 
a great experience and feel seen and feel heard. Um, but yes, it's definitely tough, right? When you feel like, you know, I'm not doing any of that, but um, there are people who might be um, causing some of that pain, who you're, you know, now sort of in charge of, sort of, so to say. Um, and, I, and, and you know, I, you know, we'll definitely continue to hold you up in prayer and other leaders as well, because um, you're sort of like that face of the institution to the students. And I think being a, um, a Christian, um, this could really be a great opportunity for your students to, they're watching, I, they're watching all of us, you know, see how we respond. And, and I'm thinking well, about this too. And right now there is such a distrust of all uh, forms of authority and, and you know, corporate uh, whatever, um, right. you know. John, I wonder, I mean, what, what you've just been saying makes me think in this current moment of increased awareness to racial injustice and the role of institutions, um, you know, often not helpful and sometimes very harmful in efforts to remedy racial injustice. How, how do you think about the institutions in which you're involved, both locally at, at this university, but also in the institution of design, illustration, ed- education of, of future artists? Mm-hmm. What are the challenges and opportunities around race and justice uh, in these institutions? Well, I mean, in the art, in the art world, there's just no escaping that the the canon of design is mm-hmm. incredibly white. You know, it's it's incredibly Western, and I I think back to students who have felt out of place in our program who are African American. That it to me now looking back, there is a lot more clarity as to why they maybe did not feel like they fit just um, culturally. Not not just culturally, but like the things that we talk about as content areas, the the people that we point to as heroes, as leaders, um, you know, up until recently, we had very few faculty of color in the design school. Um, so they have no they have no mentors they can look to. We're not talking about anyone that they recognize. Uh, we're sort of ignoring content areas that they might be interested in. So, I mean, I think the art school education has a long way to go and illustration specifically. I mean, it is, it, it has been white dudes for so long that mm-hmm. uh, it's hard to not, I mean, I can easily look to my, my career and be like, no, I mean, I, I worked hard. I was nobody. I, I mean, I did it all on my own, but you know, I'm, I'm a white dude. So, I mean, it, it's hard to say like, well, I, no, it had nothing to do with me. Uh, getting a job at the New York Times when I didn't deserve it. Like, of course that helps. I mean, it's it's very, I mean, once you start really peeling back things and being willing to um, question some assumptions, uh, it, it really is is pervasive. And what's the, so I think a lot of people are maybe in that moment of thinking, wow, that this is pervasive, it's it's everywhere. Uh, but but there's not a lot of sense of what to do about it. Or uh, so, do you have thoughts or even aspirations of what what to do about it? Yeah, I mean, I I think the the first thing to do is is actually, I mean, it's kind of the first thing everyone says is hire more faculty, more diverse faculty. Um, but it's so much more complicated than that in the illustration world because there are so few 
Mm-hmm. Uh, if, like we're hiring people in an academic institution, we got to have credentialed black um, illustrators out there. And if you just follow down the line, like, you know, black kids don't go to art school as much. They don't do uh, an MFA, you know, and we're we're not hiring tenure track people without those terminal degrees. So, I mean, there's there are a ton of things that that add up to this bigger picture. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, I, I mean, the, if we had more local students at WashU, I mean, this is one thing I've always thought about and a fellow colleague of mine, uh, Tim Portlock, has been working on um, more local recruitment into the art school um, from community colleges and um, Mm -hmm. so that it is not such an elite bubble, uh, especially in inside of an art school, which is already a very high price tag for what many people feel like is a sort of um, luxurious uh, degree of uh, field of study. Yeah, it's that. That's uh, John. I mean, I I do agree. This is um, a, a lot of a lot of this is going to take um, sort of multiple bits and pieces. Sort of like it's like a systems sort of thinking systems thinking approach that we need to take. That there is uh, specific actions that need to happen sort of at the grassroots level. So thinking about K through twelve education and and just even starting to introduce design or illustration as even like a possible um, career option uh, for a lot of students at that level. And and I think that you know we want to also be desirable to uh, students of color um, that that as we you know seek them out or you know, look to recruit, whether it's, you know, locally or not, that we can start to think about just our culture as a university. And and I think, you know, even, even with, you know, recruiting faculty of color, I think could even go beyond that and thinking about recruiting faculty whose specialty um, is sort of um, in interrogating these issues that have to do with the, how narrow the canon of design or illustration is or whose um, sort of scholarship touches on race-related issues. Um, and, and I think as an industry, we're sort of uh, going through this moment together and we're sort of seeing those gaps and everyone is now out trying to recruit uh, from a field that is pretty much almost empty. Um, but but I think, you know, just like you'd said, like in the interim, I think like listening to our students more and having action behind um, the feedback that we get, it, you know, those, those small steps, I think will really mean a lot. Um, seeing that we look at our curriculum critically and uh, start to diversify and decolonize that curriculum as well. I think those are all like moves that uh, will um, help our student body start to sort of regain trust in what we're offering. And and it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a complex, these are complex issues. They're not going to be solved in one, two, five years, I think we can start to lay a foundation. Um, but yeah, I think we're, when we start having action, which you know, we're, you know, we're already working towards, uh, that will matter. Uh, but yeah, and part of the, I mean, as a person who is is starting a graduate school, we're now our, we have our second year class coming through, so we're a we're a program that is credentialing young illustrators to be, mm-hmm. um, you know, in an academic field. So we've had over 80 applicants for our first two years altogether, and and only a handful of those were um, African American. And we have our first student coming in this year uh, as a as a um, a first year student. So there is, um, you know, it's just it's 
it, unfortunately, what students want, and when I when I talk to them about it, they just they're very impatient. They they don't they don't want to hear that it will take time, and I I get it. I mean, I don't want it to take time here, but you know that's that's again the sort of burden of leadership is that you you don't say well you don't get it and you're stupid and um you know I'm not I'm going to block you on Twitter because you're angry, you know you say like yeah you're you're right it should be faster but when you're committed to an institution, you know, as a person with integrity, you, you kind of have to, you, know, you have to wear it sometimes. So, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's, that's part of, part of the, the, the mantle. John, you yeah. mentioned Twitter. And so since you brought it up, let's talk about social media. Oh, um, you're kind of, you're kind of a social media guru of sorts. I mean, you, you, you uh, <laughs> have this spidey sense about it. And so I'm curious about, how you think about social media, both your own engagement, how it helps you, I don't know, personally, professionally, how it, how it hinders what you want to do as an artist or a communicator, um, just general reflections on social media in our current moment. Well, as a person who is um, neck deep in all things Tolkien, I, I believe that Twitter is the closest thing to the representation of the the ring of power. It it is so and it it allows you to do so much. It you can wield um, influence. You can hurt others. You can promote yourself, and it also creates this like inward looking um, horror as well. That like there is a kind of decay that happens to you when you grab tighter onto that ring of power. So I, I, I do, I do love it. And there are moments where I am, um, I I just feel incredibly convicted by what it's doing to me or what I feel like after I'm reading Twitter for a while. So I, I do think you have to be very careful with it. I mean, the metaphor breaks down in that, Gandalf won't even touch the ring because he knows he would he would try to use it for good and it would it would destroy him. So I'm trying to use the ring sporadically and then put it away, which uh, which never works. So I, <laughs> I do I do think you have to be careful. But there's there's no question that it's it is uh, it is the way our world speaks to each other and, and in in many ways that you know TikTok is now the gallery. I mean the, the salon. <laughs> The salon does not exist anymore. People do not go to the art museum to see what the avant-garde are thinking about um, the world. I mean, we're, we're just we're, the way we communicate as a culture is now almost entirely um, through visual communication of one form or another and on social media. Yeah, that's uh, that's striking and also a little bit discouraging. But um, but you're right. still yeah, you're still. Touching the ring, I guess. Can you, um, we're kind of wrapping up here and I wonder, maybe we'll give you the last word and any kind of, if there's one piece of advice, you know, on a podcast about Christian faculty and higher ed, your own work and your own aspirations for the university, for the church, what's, what, what are, is there a closing thought you want to leave with our listeners? Yeah, I, it's funny. I will talk to students, uh, young young Christian artists, about you know how do I how do I go out and do a good work for Christ with my art? You know, there is there is such a longing in in young Christian artists to be to be a good and and faithful 
um, steward, you know, and I, and I really understand that. But I, I, what I often tell them is that, that, that anxiety, um, the, the sort of FOMO almost of like, have I done good things for God is, uh, is a, is a misplaced desire. And so, um, I think approaching all of your work, um, with an, with an authentic humility, um, I think God has gifted each of us with, um, things that only we can see in the world. And ultimately that's, that's what art is really. It's a, it's a lens to see the world through someone else's, uh, perspective. And so just being confident that, um, not just God made you for a purpose, but that, that you are, um, that you are loved and seen and known by him and not, and not through your output because, but because you are, you know, a child of God. And so I think there is some, I think there's some peace in that, in, in your work. Like we, we, we should not accidentally, um, put works-based righteousness into our, we like, we take it out of our church space, but then we inject it back into our workspace. You know? <laughs> um, so, I mean, I'm very guilty of that. So I think having, having a, uh, a healthy understanding of, of, of grace, uh, on all mm-hmm. things. That's great. Lovely. Penina, any closing thoughts? No, just want to say thank you to John for uh, just taking the time to chat with us and to just also be vulnerable, um, with the complexities that come with, um, the many hats that you wear. And um, thank you for sharing with our listeners out there what you do and how to do it well. And for being our second guest on the Carvacast. I think you did well. You did well. Yeah. Yes. And join us next time for episode three with intro theme music too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>